Hello everyone and welcome to Note Up number 99. I'm Rod Vag and today we have a show about ES modules. We've got some extra special guests today who are deep inside thinking about ES modules. We've got Bradley Mech. How about you introduce yourself, Bradley? I'm Bradley Mech. I've been around the Node.js community for a very long time. I work at GoDaddy, and I'm the maker of the enhancement proposal to bring ES modules into Node. I've been recently married, so you may actually see a name change for Bradley Mech to Bradley Fadius in the future. Great. Thank you, Bradley. And we also have Kariti Patino. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, guys. Yeah. I'm the editor of of the loader specification on one of them, also the editor of ECMA 402 specification. This is the internationalization specification in JavaScript. And I have been part of the ECMA committee for quite some time now. And I work for Salesforce. And we also have first novel. Welcome first. Hey, so hope everybody's having a fantastic time whenever they're listening to this. I am the team lead for the NPM CLI team. And I'm involved in all this because there is probably a role for NPM to play once we have things figured out. A number of the competing proposals right now involve using package.json, which is you know one of the main touch points for NPM into the Node ecosystem. So I am an interested stakeholder here. That's great. And we also have Jordan on post-production, who you can give a shout out to on Twitter or somewhere else. But thank you, Jordan. Now, we're going to dive into ES modules. One question I have before we really get started, are we calling them ES modules or ES6 modules or ES7 modules? What is the name of this thing? I think ES module is fine. So they started showing up in the spec in ES6 or ES2015, whatever you want to call it, but they're going to be in all the future versions. So tying it to a version may be difficult. Okay, let's just call it ES modules for now. We're going to split this into three different parts. We're going to be talking about the background. We're going to be talking about the proposals for interacting with Node and some of the trade-offs and interoperability that we need to have. And then we're also going to talk about how this will work for Node or may work for Node, what the next steps are there. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean and Yet. We'll hear more about them during the show. But let's dive now into the background of what this is all about. Maybe, Karidi, you can lead us off here talking about the split between what is known as the module system and the module loader. What are these two different things and why are they? Why should we consider them separate? Yeah, initially they were part of the 262. 262 is a specification for ECMAScript. About a year ago in a meeting in Boston, the committee meeting in Boston, we decide to split it into two pieces and, and maintain only the pieces that are related to the grammar and the intrinsic of the module into 262. And then the rest of it, just move it out into a separate document to try to figure out what else was needed at the time. I think that that was a good decision at the time because it took us almost a year to figure out all the details and all the story around the loader. So at this point, we have these two separate pieces. One of them is focus on specific details about the grammar, all the specifics of the syntax, the export, the import syntax, the semantics of it. 
And this is all in the realm of ECMAScript. And then we have this other piece that contains all the details about how we provision those modules, how we load them, how we get them ready, how we connect them, how we evaluate them, and so on. And those details are part of the loader specification right now. And also the story around interoperability. With regard to Node, what relevance does the loader have for, for Node? There's Node's current loader, which people are using via Require. It's a common JS-based loader. It's basically everything on NPM currently. And then there's a separate loader that's the WhatWG loader that Carity is uh, writing up. And he can tell you more about that than I could. But the basic idea is we want Node's loader and the WhatWG loader to be compatible in some ways. Because as Carity was saying, the loaders are going to be affecting how we load modules. Like, for example, how we resolve a path to an actual file and the order in which modules are evaluated. So we want to check and be sure just that these two separate loaders, Node's current one and what WG loader spec are able to interop in a way that doesn't harm either and lets basically the current existing ecosystem continue as we upgrade. Okay, yep. That's, I think that's going to be a lot of what we talk about today. What is the status of these things? Because I, I hear a lot about you know them not being complete or a recent complaint was that somebody told me that there's not even a spec around these things, but I believe that's not quite true. What's the, the status of the module system spec? So the module, the, the ES6 modules or the, the pieces that we put in ES6 are settled at this point. We haven't seen any major issue in the last six months or so. In fact, there are only four new features that we want to add to it. Some of those are very tiny, like the new export from, which is just sugar syntax for people to easily ex- re-export things from another module. That one is just sugar. We have export get, which is a way to get a, to use a getter uh, modules, which was not part of the initial specification, and we want that because you can do that in Node. Actually, that one came through the Node discussions and how to have full compatibility with existing Node systems. The imperative form of import to be able to load modules on demand later on when something happened, that one is still missing. I think that's one of the important bits. But but not something that we want to have right, right now to, 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 to have it ready before we can get modules. And then the final one is the native modules, the modules that will be implemented by the engines, like saying tomorrow VA implements Cindy as a, as a module and you can import that kind of module directly into other modules without having to do any provision, the engine provision that for you. That kind of thing is still missing, and we have some ongoing discussions, very healthy discussions around native modules. Those are the main four things that I can think of in terms of additional features to the ESX module system, but nothing else. Like It's, it's already subtle. People are happy with it, and, and we believe it's not going to change drastically in the, in the, in the future. So that, that's, that's sort of the current state of ES modules, at least the grammar part of it. 
And, and what about the, the loader? How settled is that? The, the loader, I believe we are almost there. We, obviously, we have a bunch of people collaborating and helping us with this. Mostly, it is just Dave Herman, Yehuda Katz, and myself working on it. But we have the help of a lot of people. I think there are a few pieces that are still missing. There is a, a in terms of spec text for the basic part of the loader, there is only one PR pending that we, we want to get ready very soon. That settles all the details about the APIs, the ergonomics of how you create dynamic modules or these reflective modules that we call it, and all these other details about how the loader functions, what's the pipeline, the, the different stage that the module goes through when, when it's being imported and evaluated. All these details are already flushed out, and, and we actually have a referral implementation that works just fine in Node and in the browser. So we, we have been constantly validating whatever we are doing to make sure that, that everything is ready. In the case of the other pieces of the loader specification, which has some ramifications in other, in other specifications as well, we have the workers, how to load a module in a worker. We already have some specification to, to be able to specify that the worker that you're using is a type module. Dominic did a fantastic job on and getting the script type module in the HTML spec, like be able to have the script tag in, in HTML is an important bit for this. And Bradley has been working for quite some time now on the pieces that we will go into Node. And uh, we believe we are pretty close to, to be in a very good shape to go on and start implementing these pieces. And also we have implementers which are already working on modules in all four major engines, so that's, that's also very healthy at this point. Forrest, there's a way of bringing you in, maybe, um, I, I don't know, I don't, really don't know who the best person to ask this question of is, but there, there's various ways of transpiling code into ES5 for use in Node and even in the browser. That does module work that looks something like the spec. Forrest, do you have any idea what the options are there and, and how close to spec they might be at the moment? The most obvious place to start is Babel, because I think Babel has the largest traction of any of the transpilation solutions out there. And in fact, I think at least one of the kind of prototype transpilers for the module system got deprecated in favor of Babel back when it was still six to five. And that's an interesting example. Seb and the rest of the team has had to solve a number of, of kind of tricky to solve problems. One of the most obvious being that the semantics for the module system are they're static semantics. They require a certain amount of support from the compiler. And you kind of have to fake that because you don't have that same compiling and linking phase at runtime in the, the transpile target unless you want to take on the burden of having a pretty enormous runtime system, which to this point the Babel team hasn't wanted to have. So it works in practice, but basically what it does is it converts it, depending on how you have your plugin set up, either to a you know a, a system JS or a roll-up style like or browserify style, you know, combine everything and the minify it step, or it just uses the node quasi common JS style required statement to roll it up. So that's that's a pretty obvious solution. Like I said, there's also system JS, which you can use via JSPM, 
and JSPM has been trying to get this particular problem solved, I think probably the longest of anything that looks vaguely like a package manager, and I think it's probably one of the longest existing solutions. I think it had support for something that looked like the draft ES module spec before even Tracer or you know any of the other playgrounds had any support for it. So that's an option. And then there's all you can also use System.js, which is a you know a package that exists independently of JSPM independently. And recently, people have been using Rollup as a new way to kind of abstract over you know your whole build pipeline. It's it's since I don't do a lot of front end development, my experience with it is pretty minimal. But it is something that I've heard a lot of buzz around for people who are trying to create a forward looking. ES6 and up friendly way of doing front-end development that will take advantage of that and will bridge the gap between reality right now. And it's spec compliance is a, a tricky subject. Like, like I said, the static semantics of the module system, the actual import and export and default stuff is all there in some form. And that, that part's all finished like you know that was part of ES 2015 and that's done it's only the loader stuff that has anything that, that's up for grabs and some of the some of the semantics about how the loader is brought in that's still fidgety for Babel for instance like it turns out that it's pretty tricky to deal with some of the aspects of default export and Seb has kind of gone back and forth and if you want to have interoperability which is something that I anticipate we're going to spend a bunch more time talking about you have to kind of jump through some hoops to use a transpiled ES6 or ES module in the the node side of things when you're using default exports so if you're following the kind of single export pattern that it's quite common in the node world you have to import the module then dot default because People were doing some fairly hinky things that was not forward compatible with how they were exporting properties when they were exporting objects as part of these things. People were doing some, because those bindings in the ES module world are supposed to be static, we were running into a situation where people were doing things that as soon as you had a real ES module system were going to break. And there was a lot of discussion about that on the Babel repo and really you know, Seb McKenzie or James Kyle or somebody would be much better to talk about this than I would. But it ended up causing some interoperability hazards that are going to actually probably continue to bite us as we try to figure out how we do interoperability in Node. That's kind of the, the basic situation. I think by default, like I personally use Babel and I use, I try to use it in a idiomatic way in as much as we haven't really established the idioms yet. And it's working pretty well. It feels pretty good. And I'm trying to do that in such a way that I'm not going to have to change too much when there actually is something needed to use. But it's also one of the things that's driven my personal belief that whatever story we have to come, we come up with for this, there needs to be a fairly strong interoperability component just because, well, we'll get into that more later. Bradley, I might pull you in because I know you've had a lot of experience using transpilers here. Do you have anything to add to what Forrest has said here around what's available and what the differences are between what you can do now and what the spec is saying? Transpilers are bit of an interesting beast. They take what's the expected future and they try to shape it into today's code. Um, But often there's a little bit of leaky abstraction going on. So probably the biggest offense, if you talk to Sebastian McKenzie, one of, well, the Babel author, is going to be the fact that when Babel 
is transpiling ES6 module syntax, it actually has a mixed mode going on. And so there are some very specific things you can do in Babel that you couldn't do if this was a real ES6 module. Uh, example is when you declare your exports in ES modules, you have to declare them ahead of time. So this declarative export means you can't add new keys to export during runtime, but that's not true for Babel. Babel is actually compiling to common JS, which semantically has some differences with ES modules, and that causes this leaky behavior where you can do some things like add additional exports at runtime that you can't do in ES modules. But there are some trade-offs and advantages to being able to do this declaratively ahead of time. I guess the only other thing to mention about behavior is a lot of people see Node's module system as allowing many exports or a single export. I would just encourage people to think that you only ever export a single entity in Node's common JS module system. A great way to think about this is if I set module.exports equals to null, null doesn't have any properties. So how do you describe it? Well, Node's module system only reads the exact value of module.exports. So we're going from this single export system in Node to having a multiple export system in ES modules, which is a big gain, but it's very hard to think about because a lot of the times people export objects and treat them as though they're exporting multiple things. <laughs> There's a lot to dive into there, isn't there? One of the important questions here is what what's going to happen when people move from transpiling their module code to actually using them in a system that can understand modules? What are some of the breakages we're most likely to see? Or what are the biggest risks for people who are currently using tools like Babel at the moment but may end up running that code natively in an engine that understands it all? Bradley, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm sure Carity could pipe in as well on some of this. So there are some concerns. And some of these are true only for common JS modules when you're upgrading to ES module syntax. And some are only true for transpilation. So I'm only going to talk about the transpiled problems right now. Basically, when you're using transpiled modules, you need to be very careful that you don't break the assumptions presented by the ES module system. And so they're, they're actually pretty few, but you just need to keep them in your brain. One is you need to declare all of your exports. So in Node, there's a pattern of having like, if Node ENV equals debug, export this instead of that. So you can actually do that in ES modules. You don't have to know the values you're going to export ahead of time. You just have to know the names. So basically, you're okay having values at runtime, but you cannot, under any circumstance, safely add names that you're going to export. So if you have like exports.foo 
equals one in a set timeout, that's absolutely not going to work unless foo has already been declared somewhere. But for the most part, that's going to be your biggest breakage. The other breakage is ES modules export something called the module namespace. And the module namespace just says, hey, these are all the exported identifiers for my module. And that's read only. You can't alter the values. So if I were to, say, require Bluebird or something, I couldn't alter the values unless I was inside the Bluebird library itself. And so if you're altering other people's modules, that may cease to function in the future. Karidu, have you got some more thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, we know. I think Forrest did a pretty good job explaining all the details about the current state of things. And there is obviously the possibility that you have either a CommonJS module that you have a hard time making it ES6 module. You do that kind of things that Bradley just mentioned, like modifying external modules that you don't own, that kind of thing will, will break. And you have to readjust to the new semantics. But if you already have an ES6 module and you are trans transpiling that with Babel or SystemJS or any other transpiler out there that uh, including Closure Compiler also supports that today, you most likely will be fine because the, the semantics that are a little bit more complex and some of the transpilers are essentially being a little bit loose in maintaining those semantics are the semantics related to circular dependencies, temporary that sung into inside your module, that kind of things that is way more complicated to make sense and way more complicated to actually encounter out in the wild that I don't think will have a big impact on people who are already writing ES6 modules. And actually, we put a lot of effort from the very beginning on getting to the point where we can create this sort of synthetic format, and we call it system register, which is what system jazz used today, to make sure that whatever the semantics are in ES6, we should be able to create some format that preserves the whole semantic. But at the end of the day, we figure out that um, most people don't need to have, don't need to, to, to be taxed with all this overhead of keeping all the semantics in place when in reality 99 point something percent will simply not use those semantics. So I think we'll be fine, but it's just part of the game. Like you write ESX today, you might have to make some small adjustments down the road, but, but that's it. Yeah, it seems to me that um, people are fairly used to having to make those adjustments as specs evolve. So I guess if you're doing transpilation today for ES6, you, you're probably expecting things to have to change. <laughs> one of the things you're buying into. Yeah, actually, Babel has a form, a mode that you can operate. Like you want the strict semantics or you want the loose semantics, which you pay a less penalty. You don't have to go through accessors to get to the pieces that you need and so on. That, that's fine. I mean, that, that, that should not be an issue going forward. Let's uh, move on from that discussion and hear from our first sponsor and, uh, and then we'll return after this little break to talk about some of the different trade-offs and the stakeholders in this discussion. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. 
Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit digitalocean.com and use the promo code NOTEUP on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started today. We're on to the second part of our discussion where I'd like to lead in here by talking about who are the stakeholders in this discussion and what do they bring to the discussion that, that we have to find an agreement point on? And, and maybe, Karidi, you're the, you're the best person to, to start this discussion off. Who are the different parties that we have to pull together on this and, and what are their concerns? So I think from our end, obviously we have the committee, the TC39 committee, and, and all the people that are involved in the committee somehow, which care about modules deeply. We obviously have the community who use Node, and they, this is from the very beginning, and, and, and Forrest has been with us in a few meetings already, where we dip into the details of NPM and how we foresee NPM has an important bit of this discussion. Obviously, we, we have the community who use JavaScript beyond Node, which we also have some stakeholders, especially companies that are not using Node, maybe using Java or some other infrastructure. But I think, obviously, most of the conversation has been driven by the different champions of the different groups. And at this point, from our end, it's mostly Dave Herman from Mozilla, Yehuda Katz from, from jQuery Foundation, until the myself. And, and obviously, we have other people that have been helping helping us a lot on this. And and there is, as you probably have seen, there is a huge amount of people who are interacting via the different issues that we have open, the different discussions. So a lot of people are involved in this. So one thing that interests me as I read discussions about this is just how far this, this specification is taking us from what we in Node are used to with regard to modules. And, and Node probably has the, the most mature JavaScript module system of any of them. What are the concerns of browsers in particular that have driven this discussion and the, and the specification to the point where it's so different to, I guess, the cow path that Node has already been paving? What are the compromises that have had to be made or what are the concerns that have driven us to this point we're at now? I think the first thing is to understand the conscious decision that we made at the committee a while ago to have a completely different parsing process for modules. That's the starting point for this discussion. Like a while ago, we make it a conscious decision that modules are strict mode by default. You cannot escape that in a module in ASX. And, and on top of that, we want to specify a completely different parser process. At the moment, we have, if you look into the specification today, you, you, you will see two separate parsing processes. One of them is parsing in a script. The other one is parsing a module. The reason why we want that is because implementers uh, were having a very hard time 
to have a parser that contains two modes, the sloppy mode and the strict mode. And, and also was an opportunity for, for the committee to actually sort of deprecate the, the sloppy mode in, in a sense that we, we can have a parser that is very efficient, that knows exactly what, what's going to happen and all the details about the strictness of what we are parsing. And implementers are very eager to have that in place because that facilitates their work. So that's the sort of the seed of all this discussion. Like we have these two different parsing modes. And then from there, the discussion has been mostly driven by how are we going to use these two different modes and how we will detect whether or not we should be using one or another in the different conditions, whether that's browser or node. In the browser, we knew from the very beginning that we want to have a out-of-bag uh, out-of-band configuration that, that explicitly tell the engine what sort of code are you going to parse. And, and the engine will simply opt in into the one that you select. And the same process happened a while ago when we were working on adding modules to Esprima and, and to the different parsers that are out there. We explicitly have to tell the parser what mode should be should be used, and then based on that, we use one parser or another. And then this discussion sort of drag into Node at the moment, whether or not we, we want to have this sort of configuration that tells Node what parser to use versus having a, a way to detect which one to use. Just, I'll just bring Forrest in here, because I, I know, Forrest, you, you, you represent a, a, a crossover point between front-end and back-end, because I know NPM is positioning itself as a as much 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 more of a JavaScript packaging solution. So what, what's your take on how this has evolved? Well, the first thing to say is that, you know, we have a, a large fact on the ground, which is the 230,000 or so packages in the Node ecosystem, I mean, sorry, NPM ecosystem. And, you know, those packages cross a lot of boundaries. And so that means that there is this module system that already exists. There is a new module system that is coming down that is, in most ways, an improvement over what we already had because it's standardized. And, you know, I actually I feel pretty good about where everything landed in terms of the static semantics and in terms of the module loader itself. But at the same time, we have this we have this probably pretty prolonged period of transition that we're going to be dealing with where people are going to be going through the process of migrating their stuff from CJS to ES modules and where people are going to need to be able to consume things from one side or the other. So from where I sit and from looking at this kind of from the, the point of view of the user of NPM, who could be a front-end developer, who could be a, you know, a could be Trevor Norris, who is like kind of like my mental ideal of the back end. Could be anywhere in between, and it could be you know there's a lot an increasing number of people who are pretty full stack. Those people don't necessarily need to be bothered with the details of what module loader somebody is using. So when I'm looking at the proposals that are coming out of 
TC39 and looking at the, the, the editors of ES402 and I'm looking at the proposals that Bradley and others are making, I'm primarily thinking about it in terms of what is going to be the lowest possible cognitive load for the people who are consuming these packages. And that tends to color how I feel about the various trade-offs because some of them like like some of them seem very straightforward. Like to choose an example, and this is getting a little ahead of myself, so I'll try to, to limit this to a certain amount. Is you know why don't you just try to parse something in the module context rather than the script context, and like try to automatically determine through parsing whether that module is one kind or another. And if you follow the discussion on the proposal, there are all kinds of like strange issues, and there's 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 a big chance of getting yourself into some pretty major problems by trying to be too clever about that. So I tend to look for pro proposals that are explicit one way or the other and that are also very mechanical and don't require very much in the way of heuristics. This is something that's increasingly true of how I think about NPM as well, but that's probably a separate discussion. But in general, I want there to be clear signals of intent, and I want there to be things that are very easy for both tooling and for human beings to evaluate when they're looking at them in terms of what kind of thing am I dealing with. Well, so it's something that um, I think is that we do need to back up on a little bit and cover is what is this buying for the browser? Because from what I understand, a lot of this is dri driven by browser concerns because in the browser we've had to do all sorts of crazy bundling for years, and you know either, you either have a proliferation of script tags that are loading things from all different places in different formats, or you have a, a proliferation of packages within a single script that you're loading in a in a thing. So the browser has been a pretty crazy place for modularizing code. How has that impacted on the development of these specifications? I guess particularly the loader is, 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 is a main story here because it goes to how you pull these things together. I think obviously for, for us, the browser itself is a, the use case for the browser is an important one. And as you said, is it is the crazy part of, of the whole ecosystem right now. Like you have to do so many things to get this to work, to get different pieces that you need for your application to function. Something that you don't, that overhead doesn't exist in the Node ecosystem. You just do a requirement and just work. So we want to have the same, or at least a, a similar level of functionality in the browser that can facilitate the usage of these different pieces that you need for your application to function. So obviously, a lot of discussion is driven by what the browser can do and what the browser cannot do. I think an example of this is the uh, whether or not we should be adding the extensions or how are we going to do, are we going to specify the .js in every file or are we going to get the loader to add that automatically? That sort of discussion also uh, expand to the fact that over the network, we cannot attempt to load something that doesn't have an extension, and if it fails, try to load it with the extension. So they have, obviously, many of these use cases that are very specific to the browser that somehow leak into decisions that we make on the loader. That's, that's something that we cannot avoid. But ultimately, the goal is to, from the very beginning, to really have code that is portable enough to be able to use it in different runtimes, whether that's Node or the browser, any other runtime. If we can get to the point where we have 
this format that works fine in those conditions, then we have to see it on, on the task. That's the main goal. And obviously, how are we going to achieve that? Uh, we'll have to compromise on some cases. And, and in the case of Node, I think we, we are very fairly level up at this point in terms of functionalities and in terms of semantics. I think we, we are pretty close to have something that, that works pretty well for the majority of the users. I think one of the obvious points of difference is the loading of files. And in Node, we can, uh, it was decided early on to make the decision that loading a module is a synchronous task. So when you do a require, you're actually doing a, like a refile sync on a file and it blocks the whole process while it loads and then you get your module. So there's no need to do any asynchronous hackery like you might have in AMD or um, other systems that allow asynchronous module loading. It's just at that point in time you're acquiring the stuff, but that doesn't work in the browser, does it? That's, you can't just block everything until you've loaded a file over the network. So from what I understand, there's an asynchronous part to the loader that is, is suits the browser case nicely, but might create some difficulties for Node. Bradley, I know you were digging into this a while back with Trevor with regard to loading asynchronously and how that impacts on performance. Can you comment on that um, that area of compromise? The key here is what we talked about early on, the separation of the module system and the loader. So Node has its existing common JS loader is synchronous. We can consider that separate from what the ES module system is going to bring in. Because the ES module system doesn't determine load order exactly. It determines a few things about how imports and exports are hooked up, but it doesn't really mandate that exporting or importing a file, I should say, importing a file doesn't have to be asynchronous in the ES module system. So what you've heard about the module loader being asynchronous is coming from the what WG loader specification. The proposal we have is to have a synchronous loader for Node, so it would function in the same synchronous way, but we've spent a lot of time trying to be sure that this is compatible with what the WhatWG has. There are a few really hard to produce cases where it's observable, the difference of the synchronous and asynchronous loader, but those are going to come down to things like you're relying on side effects of a module to occur, and just you're already doing things that are very hacky and yeah, just not guaranteed to actually occur. So we should be safe with our synchronous module loader. And we've spent, I don't know, we've been talking for six to nine months about this and going over many details. So we should be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. This is, this is one of the areas that we wanted to make sure that we get right. Because we knew imposing asynchronous process on node, uh, even without top level await, is going, going to be a, a big problem. So we, we really spent a lot of time trying to figure this out. I think we, the story is settled. We have a pretty good story about, around this. It is deterministic in most cases. 
you will get the exact order, this, the exact evaluation order, everything will work just fine. But again, those cases, like those very edge cases, you might get into trouble. But but I don't think people really will get into trouble that, that often by just simply using a, a synchronous processing node. And all this is sort of transparent for users. Like they, they just don't need to know the details of it. You mentioned there the top level of weight, and I've seen some discussion about this. What is the concern there with top level of weight, and why, why does that, why is that something we need to be even talking about? First of all, when we finished the ES6 specification, we didn't have enough information about top level of weight to put the provisions in the spec for when that new feature landed in the, in the specification. So at the time, and right now, if you look into the specification, the evaluation of the module is sort of synchronous. You look at the, the, the steps and it's all synchronous. There's nothing there. You go to completion, you execute to completion the whole code, and then you're done with it. The implications of bringing top-level await into the picture is that once you put a top-level await in a module, it will have to evaluate to that point, suspend the evaluation, uh, do other things, and eventually continue the evaluation. And that implies that fetching everything from disk, synchronous, linking all these modules, synchronous, and going and evaluating all the modules, synchronous, is impossible. So, so top level await, is that, is that exporting an await function at the top level, or is it actually using await to create your exports? It doesn't matter if it is an export or just a simple await that does something that suspends the evaluation of that code until something finished to continue. It doesn't necessarily have to be tied to a, an export statement per se, but, but yeah, it's, it's just a normal way that you will have in, inside a function, but you might have it at the top level. Okay, so there's lots so, of tricky trade-offs there. I would just like to add something to that. So JavaScript historically has, as Carity said, had run to completion semantics. And we're not saying that any of the module system is going to be asynchronous. We're gonna we're saying that the values produced for your exports become asynchronous. And the point at time when you reach completion of a file, so you've run to the end of file, also would become asynchronous. And, and the trick that we are going to use for Node to give you more details about the solution that we came up with, the trick that we're going to use is something equivalent to having a CommonJS module today that exports a few things and export, export this method that you can call sort of a, a way to tell you to listen for the completion of the module, the readiness of the module. I imagine that you have that sort of structure where you have this module and you somehow pass something into the module, into a function in the module that waits for something to finish to tell you, hey, it's ready now. That's the kind of trick that you do today. If your module is going to be ready later on because you are doing something on demand or something that takes some time to get ready and settle on, on the readiness of that module. And the same kind of tricks people do today, especially when it comes to initializing applications that take some time and does some, some extra work. 
the same trick we will we will use for top level weight. You have such module, you either have to do the same kind of tricks or you use the loader API, which is asynchronous and will guarantee that the module is ready and all the dependencies are ready and execution is complete, including the top level weight. So it's just like, oh, you want to use this module, this module uses form, you have to change the way that you use it. And by changing the way that you use it, you then get the guarantees that you need to know that the module is ready. ES6 and beyond is really, well, ES7 as well for async await is really bringing in some very tricky uh, parts to thinking about. A system that in, in, in the past has been quite straightforward to reason about in terms of evaluating a script in one go versus how to structure a module that might contain these complex flows in it. Yeah, so I don't, I don't uh, envy your job here in uh, trying to find these compromises. Let's dive into one of these things that the module spec is giving us and is very different to what we're used to in Node now, which is the static semantics of, of how modules are defined and used. From what I understand, the, the implications of this are quite major across all of the discussions that are happening and also what it will mean that you can and can't do with Node code in the future compared to what you can do now. Bradley, do you want to try and dive in and explain what this actually means? What does it mean for the module system to be static and have static semantics? So we often use the word static, but when we're talking with the spec, you also see the word declarative is an important thing to think about. So I may use those a little interchangeably. The basic idea is Right now, when you go and you parse a node module, you can't really be sure about a few things, like how Browserify doesn't work with dynamic paths and things like that. And that's because it's reading the paths for require at runtime, and Browserify can't do that during the parsing phase. In a way, ES modules limit us a little bit. They impose restrictions that get us advantages. So when I parse an ES module, I don't directly have a way to import a dynamic path. But once I've parsed it, I know all the paths that it is trying to pull in for its dependencies. And that's generally what we're going to be talking about when we're talking about the static imports. And I've mentioned this a couple times in the podcast, but all the exported names must be declared. You can't add or remove the names that you are exporting in your module. You can reassign their values, but they're static, they're set. Once you've finished the parse phase, you know exactly the names of things that are going to be exported. And that lets things like rollup, which people are really excited about, do dead code elimination in a realistic manner. It's super hard to do dead code elimination well in common JS format because everything's done at runtime. And so this static analysis by imposing these limits that you have to declare everything ahead of time, lets these tools do amazing things that other languages have had for years and lets us really improve 
some of the problems JavaScript's having today with things like code bloat or the fact that a transpiler will produce a large amount of code and only use a little bit of it. So that's what static analysis is really being brought to us for using ES modules. This is probably one of the major reasons why people are adapting ESX modules so fast. We, we could not have predicted that people would be writing code in ESX modules even way be, before we have any implementation in any browsers. Like literally, we, we have people writing ESX module for the last year or so. And, and the reason is all these goodies that you will get from the tooling aspect of it, because the static analysis that you can do on these declarative forms for the export and import allow you to make decisions and to create this module graph in memory that have a, a immutable representation of what, what, what your software is trying to do. This is a very valuable thing. I, I think that basically because this, there are static semantics, anything that does any kind of statics and analysis is now much more powerful. Dead code elimination is a really obvious and powerful example of that. Some slightly less, but not much less obvious. I like, and one of the things that has been that people who have been involved in the module spec from the very beginning have been telling people are things like tooling. So if you have an editor that wants to do completion that's actually directed by what's actually coming out of a, another module, that's much easier to do now. If you have linters that can identify things that might be dead code or things that are otherwise unused or like there's a, there's a lot more that you can push onto your tooling to support the development using the, the new syntax once that syntax is in play. And I think just overall, having one standard syntax for this stuff that is static, that does actually impose, it's not, a, it's not like going you know, full type system, but something that does impose some, some checks that can be verified at compile time onto the language will make for more durable and robust code overall. I mean, the, the same reason that people tend to like static typing constructs also applies to this to a certain extent. So I think that once people start picking this up and once we actually have verifiers and compilers that actually take advantage of this new, what is in a lot of ways, super strict mode. And another thing is once you are using the module syntax, you are already opted into strict mode. So you get the, the benefits of that as well. I think that we're going to see probably on the whole, higher quality code. Well, let's revisit that in uh, five years' time for us and see. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I want to I stress that part of the reason why I tend to be fairly conservative when we're having interoperability discussions is that I do think that this process is going to be prolonged. I think it's going to take a while. Let's adjust our schedule here a bit and, and, and call, it, call it into part two and use the next part to talk about uh, where the status of things with Node. So we're going to hear from our second sponsor first. At Anyet, we're very inspired by the Dreamers. But for certain people, the skills necessary to do portions of their app or product development dream don't come naturally, or at all. And that's where we can come in and help out. We've got folks specializing in design, ops, architecture, security, web, mobile, front-end, back-end, admin, project management, you name it. We are builders of things. It doesn't matter where at in the process. 
We make things for technologists and we're very good at building things for others. We've loved helping build apps and tools with folks at AT&T, the Creative Artists Agency, the Flatiron School, and Major League Soccer, to name a few. Reach out at contact at andyet.com or visit us at andyet.com for more info or just to say hi. From dream to deploy, we're here to help. And yet, the kind and efficient sort of perfectionists. And now for the third part of our show where we're going to dive into where the state of things with Node. And I think the best way to do this is to probably hand over to Bradley who opened a an issue on this the, the new repository in the Node.js org on GitHub called Node-EPS. And it was discussing this the module system and how it might work with Node. Uh, Bradley, do you want to discuss what the EPS module is for and what the process is and how that's being undertaken here with your pull request, which I think is pull request number three? I think we should delve into what Node EPS is before I really get into the proposal. Node EPS is the Node Enhancement Proposals repository. So if you have a proposal that would be a somewhat scary change, I would say, for Node Core, it may be a different mindset or it may require some thinking about before you can produce anything like a PR. It's kind of where people are encouraged to go. So an example of this is there is the proposal to bring promises into core. There's the proposal to bring ES modules into core. And there's a proposal about changing buffers' unsafe behavior to be more explicit and a little bit easier to understand when you're using unsafe stuff. Those are all in Node EPS. So I, in January, produced a proposal to bring ES modules into core. And that said, this is more about bringing the discussion up to speed so we're prepared for when this does happen, about what exact steps we plan to take. And this lets others like TC39 or V8 have some understanding about what we plan to do. The proposal has a lot of comments on it. It may be very difficult to read, but for the most part, the content of the proposal has stayed fairly static. There's a idea of interoperability in both ways. So CommonJS can require ES modules, and ES modules can import CommonJS modules. And that should be transparent to the person importing or requiring the opposite modules. And that's actually really ironclad. Nobody really has had complaints about that for the longest time. What there, we're there, there at, were a couple, though. There were a couple suggesting that uh, yes. inter- interoperability isn't necessary. Yes, but that would also mean things like throwing away all those 230,000 modules that... Forrest was talking about, which just is a no-go for Node Core. We really do need an interoperability of sorts. And there's also the fact we don't want to 
break existing code. So if you have a module and you upgrade it to ES modules and it has an NPM dependency that is CommonJS, we don't want it to just break. There needs to be an interoperability story. Maybe Forrest or Carity could talk about this as well if you want to. Forrest, how about you jump in on this? Because I know this is something you're strong about, interoperability. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and this this actually builds directly on what I was just talking about before. This is going to take a while, and I have this feeling that if we want to prescribe, for instance, you have to convert a whole package, like the, 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 the level of interoperability or the level of modularity is defined at the package level, not that there is anybody currently proposing that that's that's something that was kind of in discussion a couple weeks ago but like were you to do that you would be raising barriers to people making the switch and when i look at this when i think about interoperability like the primary thing that concerns me is the consumer like i want to make sure that that people who are going to be stitching together these packages don't have to think too hard about what kind of package that is they just want to be able to add that to their thing and then at, at some point in the future somebody changes that, you know, maybe it's a breaking change because they had to rework things to make it work with the the new semantics, but it shouldn't be too disruptive and it shouldn't be like the, the there should be a there should be a cow path to move from CJS to ES modules. That's the goal, right? Like I think I think everybody involved in this effort is in agreement that eventually we all want to be working on a single module system and that ES modules are that module system. Or if there isn't agreement around that totally that's kind of the the consensus that's driving a lot of our our thinking around how interoperability ought to work like from the that that may end up making things a little trickier for both the platform developers and for people who are building libraries that are going to be consumed this way and the the biggest issue for me still is the kind of like top level await like if you are being returned a promise for a module rather than the the module itself that is going to be a fairly disruptive change for people when they're switching things around. And that's, it feels to me like we can do better there. Like we may have to do a little bit of shenanigans on the node side of things, but I'm in favor of that. If that makes it easier for people to convert without necessarily knowing that like the, for their consumers to not have to know that the, that, that conversion is taking place. Like that's the, 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 again, like I'm very focused on the user community. I'm very focused on keeping things working as much as possible for that large and very healthy ecosystem that we see out there already. And beyond that, I'm not really driven by ideology. Like there's a lot of different ways to solve these problems technologically. And I don't think that NPM as a project has any particular interest in seeing one of those win out or the others. Again, I'm just trying to minimize the disruption and maximize uptake as much as possible. Yeah, I will say, having I dove into the thread yesterday as a, to review it for this show. It took me a couple of hours. It's pretty dense. But it's, it's mostly driven by uh, technical concerns. There's very little ideology and, and, and sort of emotional arguing going on in there, which is, which is kind of refreshing on one of these big big issue discussions. To try and get to the, the, the crux of the problem being addressed here, there's this concept we've, we've, we've circled around a couple of times of these different targets that JavaScript is loaded into. And, and traditionally, we say that everything has been loaded into the script target. And 
we're introducing a new target now, which is the module target. And so when you load JavaScript into the module target, it's a, it becomes a module in this in the sense of ES modules. Whereas we've all been using script target in the browser and in CommonJS node um, style as well. Karidi, I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about um, the detection and, and, and how you know that one is one thing or the other. Because in the browser, I believe the specs for the browser says that you you use a script, the script tag with, with type equals module, so you know ahead of time what it is. You don't use MIME types or file extensions or anything. We, we don't really have script tags in Node. So what are the difficulties in doing this detection or understanding ahead of time what it is that you're loading? Two things. Obviously, the initial, the initial assessment, at least from the spec perspective, was that you have to have these out-of-band configuration when you use this in a browser. And the script type module is, is just that thing. It's just saying, oh, I need this to be part of a module. Obviously, in Node, we don't have that. We, we have to have an alternative. One of the proposals, actually two proposals, discussed in the, in the thread were, are both around trying to look into the code and determine by looking into the code what kind of target should we use to parse that. For a long time, we, we knew in the committee that that was problematic, but once we started looking into the details and we have a lot of people in this discussion trying to dig into the details, it seems that there are two aspects of this problem. One of them is implementers and the way that uh, these things are going to be implemented by engines, in this case for Node VA, implementers will have a very hard time to have a parser that does this process in between to determine what to use and then use a specific target to parse it. Because you, if you either you use a pragma, what we have with use a strict, for example, imagine something like use module as one of the options, you have to, from the implementer point of view, you have to start parsing that. When you find that thing, then you have to switch to a different parse saying, oh, now we are using a target module and we will analyze this as a module. So this is an overhead that will happen if implementers will take care of that. It is also a, a tax that every user will have to pay for adding this thing to every file at the top. And it seems like this is convoluted. And the other approach to this is just simply not have a pragma, but doing an analysis on the code and saying, oh, if there is an export or an import statement, oh, then it's a module. But that doesn't work quite well because you can have modules that will have no export and no imports. And still it's a module and the semantics of it should be a module. And that sort of introduced some cases where you have no ability to determine whether or not this is a module and you have to choose, okay, is a module or not? I mean, when you make that, 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 that choice, it might break in some situations. And this is the, the dilemma of trying to detect by looking into the code and trying to determine what the target is. That's, that's about it. So it's not, it's not that straightforward, is it? It's like, it, it, it? A thing doesn't necessarily look like a script or like a module. Uh, in many cases, you can know whether it's a module or not, but it's not a completely exclusive process, is it? Correct. Imagine a module, a file that contains two lines. The first line says foo equal one, and the second line says bar 
which is a function called so you're calling bar. What is it? Is a module? Is not a module? Should I in, in, execute it in a strict mode? Should I execute it in normal mode? What's going on there? On the browser, it will break. If you try to use that thing as a module, it will break because foo is not defined and it's a strict mode, it will, it will throw an error, a, a syntax error. But in Node, in my work, fine, because Node has specific semantic for scripts, putting them inside a function body and in that case, that function body will not be enforcing a strict mode. So foo will be defined in the context of that module only. So there are certain conditions where there is no way we can figure it out. Like it's going to break. So that's so the, the, the detection and the, the signaling seems to be the thing that we're circling around on most here. So do we have a do we have some sort of implicit detection or is there an out-of-band signaling process where we use something outside of the file. And, and I think the proposals include things like using package JSON or the file extension. Bradley, do you want to tell us about some of the more popular proposals that have come up and have, have been proposed here? There are really only two proposals that we're looking at these days. And they're both kind of far-reaching in implications. One is the package.json. So most node code has a package.json file somewhere associated with it because most things are either on NPM or people have an application and it needs dependencies. There are some cases where you don't have package.json. The idea is we have package.json's main pointing to CommonJS modules currently. And what system.js or JSPM does is it uses this ESNext main. And the same idea is coming for one of the proposals. It's we're going to introduce a new field into package.json to say, hey, this is the ES module entry point for the package. And we can bike shed the names. I'm just going to call it module. If I refer to package.json module, I'm referring to the entry point to the package. And like Forrest said, there may be a large transition time where you're only able to port some files of your package. So in order to support that, they have other fields that they're proposing adding to package.json for things like file globs to declare. This file glob is all in ES module mode. And the idea is eventually you'd be able to transition to an NPM default where you just have a glob of star star dot JS. And that would mean every JavaScript file inside your package is ES6. And so that's one of the proposals. The other is the file extension proposal. So this is a little harder to talk about because it has much broader implications because we're using something that affects not just Node, but also other tooling as well in a bigger way. Well, I shouldn't say a bigger way, a more explicit way. The idea is 
there are all these semantic changes going on between the module target and what we have traditionally had. And I say what we traditionally have, I'm not really mentioning node modules because there are cases where people have UMD, AMD, CommonJS, Firefox has its own module system, and they're all running under these .js files. And the idea there was it's too complicated, and in some situations, we just want to have a clean break. And so the idea was we're going to still have out-of-band information by using the file extension and change it to something, I think the current leader is .jsm, and have that be the way that you determine your mode for your file. And both of these proposals have implications for other tooling. One means other tooling needs to be able to parse package.json, and package.json kind of becomes global. And the other is saying, we have a new file extension, which means existing scripts need to change and add .jsm if they want it. So it's a, it's a really hard topic, and I, I'm very scared of becoming biased talking about it. So, Forrest, let's bring you in here because I'm sure you have opinions about package.json particularly because that's largely a domain of NPM and Node only uses it for looking up the, I think it's just looking up the main property and that's all it uses it for. But this would, it, it, the proposal here would get Node much more involved in package.json. What, what are your thoughts around this? I don't think it necessarily makes Node much more involved in package.json. I, I too, have some concerns about getting super biased one way or the other, although I will declare, declare my own personal bias, which is in favor, still mildly in favor of a file extension-based solution. And the simple reason for that is that I don't necessarily like the entanglement of requiring a package.json to be present if you're going to be using ES modules. Like... NPM has gotten pretty far as a package manager by being extremely loose about what constitutes a package. This is my my favorite feature, which I can talk about because it's probably going away soon because we've decided that we just don't want to support it anymore. My favorite obscure feature, I should say, is that you can actually have a complete package dot a complete NPM package that is just a JavaScript file with a code comment in the header of it that says, here's what the package.json file would look like if it were separate. And then NPM will happily publish that thing as it stands. And that's kind of extreme. And I don't think more than two or three people have ever actually used that feature in anger. But it kind of shows the extent to which Node has gone to try to be flexible. For instance, Another example is that with the current module resolution algorithm used in Node, which at this point has very little to do with CommonJS, which is part of the reason why I try to avoid using CommonJS when we're talking about this, except in this discussion, it's nearly impossible to have the discussion without having some kind of shorthand. But with Node modules, a Node module does not have to be a directory, right? Like you can just have a JavaScript file that's sitting in your Node modules folder that is the module itself. And then the module resolver will be like, okay, that's got a .js on it. That's great. So there's two kind of main considerations around this. One is that we're going from something that is more permissive to something that's more constrained. There are good, solid reasons to do that. 
there are some posts from both you the cats and Dave Herman on the the EP pull request that we've been talking about that kind of go into the the reasons why that's actually not a, a big deal but more is the idea that you suddenly have a manifest that has to travel around with your package which is what in effect putting that property into package.json is does and to me that feels higher cognitive like a higher cognitive load and feels more disruptive than using a file name extension I find the arguments that people have made about file extensions, for example, that the tooling will have to adjust, that we are in effect creating a new file type that's going to sit around forever and that eventually we're just going to have whatever this new extension is. I find those to be compelling, which is part of the reason why my preference is milder now than it used to be. But I don't think that they're 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 huge. I mean, we've we've seen new extensions come into the ecosystem, and they're really not that big a change. And I also kind of like the explicitness of saying, "Hey, this is a different kind of thing." I also think that given a certain amount of time, I don't think that even in the Node world, all of the time, all of the code is going to be modules. Like some of it is still going to be going to use the script goal because that's basically there's no reason to make everything in your application module. There's, there's going to be parts of it that are just plain scripts. That said, this is, as Bradley said, a pretty nuanced discussion. I think that we've had a lot of success by just narrowing it down to these two. I think that it, is, it was valuable to go through the process of looking at how complicated it would be to use either a Pragma. A Pragma is a solution that I I like it more than some people, but I agree that we are like that. It's time to pull it out of the, the running in terms of serious consideration. And then like the the like the 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 idea of actually like evaluating the file and then trying to decide on the fly whether it's a, a module or not, like that just gave me the screaming heebie-jeebies. I think that's t a terrible direction to go. So I think most people were same on that one, particularly implementers. Yeah, from the from the node side. Uh, you know, package.json already does play a role with main. So to have support for both main and this thing that Bradley called module in there and to have that potentially be an array or a glob pattern, those things do not do not scare me particularly. And I think it's more just about what is going to be the easiest for people to pick up and what is going to be the things that people are happiest to live with over time. Karidi, I'll bring you in here because I think you're, you've been uh, one of the holdouts on the extension thing and you've been trying to find a solution that doesn't involve adding a new extension to the ecosystem. What, what are your concerns here and what, what, are your, what are your preferences in trying to find a solution? Yeah, so the, I think what is important to highlight first is that this is going to only affect a very small percentage of people. Like this is only for packages that has to mix ESX modules and common JS module for whatever reason. The majority of the people will just simply have a package that is either common JS or or is ESX. But if for some reason you have to mix them, one of the cases is because your code is ESX but your test is still common JS. So that, that that kind of a scenario. But in the future. Like if we look into the future, we might have a very narrow group of people has mixing this these two formats in one package. That's one thing we want to make sure that that everyone understands that this is a considerable small use case. And then on top of that, obviously we will have 
what we call the fat packages, packages that you probably have the, the whole source code in ES6 and your module runs just fine in Node version that use or supports ES6. But then when it runs in an old version of Node, you want to have a transpiled version down to CommonJS, and then you use that version. And, and we don't want to consider those because that process of transpiling is a mechanical way. And when you have a mechanical process, you can put all the pro, all the pieces, all the provision to do the right thing in such a way that when you get that package in in in, in an old version of Node, all the pieces are in place for that to function. So that being said. The, the problem that uh, the, the majority of the people who are advocating for the out-of-band configuration in package.json, and this is, by the way, a discussion that we had a long time ago, Forrest was part of it, when we first came up with this idea of having the, ES, uh, the JS Next main in package.json as a way for signaling to, to other tools that this, this package actually contains source code in ES6 that happens like probably eight or nine months ago in, in a meeting in San Jose, if I remember correctly. But tools have been adopting that, like uh, Rollup is one of the examples that relies on this to determine whether or not your package actually contains ES6 modules and therefore they can do the static analysis and the folding process for your modules. I believe this is sort of the evolution of that, saying now we have a signal that we can tell Node uh, somehow that the, this package is actually using ES6 and all the pieces on it are ES6 and you should not care about CommonJS at all in that package. But in the case that you have some special things on it, then you go and, and do some special configuration telling Node specifically what are the files that should be considered ES6. Again, this is a very narrow use case for a very small group of, of people that in our, this is, at least that's our position right now. So what are the problems that we see with the extension? The problem that we see, obviously, is the, how are we going to teach people about this new extension? What's, what will be the process to get people on board on the new extension. What is it? Is it different? Is it a different language? We have been telling people that we have new new features coming into the language. Like the whole ES6 is just an upgrade of the language. So now we are telling them that in order to use these new features, they need to use a new extension. Sort of a, a barrier for them to get to that. Obviously, there, there is a concern about how can we teach these different things, like, oh, it's different because it's a different format, because it has different semantics. Well, Node.js already has a different semantics from the script. You can, you can have some modules in Node that has a return, a, a single line with a return, and that is still valid, but that's not in a script. So there's already semantics that are different between a Node module and in a script. And this new format is just different semantics as well. Like it's in the same category in our opinion, but but also the problem is like there is a large ecosystem of people and tools that are using .js. If you change that, if you if you impose a new extension beyond Node ecosystem, people will have to make adjustments, and and we cannot even predict or estimate how how many of these things are out there in the world. Like imagine like I don't know the H, HT access or 
tools that were written 10 years ago and they relied on the Dutch ass to do some process on it. You have to go and change all these things and all the network infrastructure that is relying on yes and yes to do some special headers or checks or, or, or optimizations. You have to change all these things just because you have a new extension. So there are many ramifications of this problem. And, and we believe since the use case is very narrow that we can solve it with the out of band without too much trouble. Does anyone else want to dive in on that? Yeah, since everybody's giving their opinions on things, I'm going to jump in. So I'm probably the heaviest into wanting a file extension, except for a couple of other people. Where Carity sees this as very small group of people, I see this as affecting a absolutely inordinate amount of people. So I don't see things the same way that he does. I see these as much bigger problems, and that's kind of where this divide is coming from. For example, the package JSON node pretty much indefinitely needs to default into thinking everything is common JS. Otherwise, we break some existing scripts. So with that in mind, when we're in the process of upgrading, there's a question about when does NPM start to automatically use this file glob or something to notify, hey, this entire package is ES6. And then there's also questions about if I'm a programmer, like how do I know what file mode I'm in if I get to these ambiguous files we talked about before? If it's still .js, I need to go find like a package JSON, but I'm a browser dev and there's some really awkward cases that I, I feel that the out of band is trying to hide what's going on more than like help the programmer understand what's going on. And even today, there's like Webpack has like seven different modes your imports could be in. It's it's just adding on another one to that. So um, instead of really trying to address the problem, I I feel very strongly that it's just kind of sweeping it under the rug. And there, there are mechanical things that we talked about with Carity, and a lot of those still apply to what the file extension is capable of doing. They're pretty much identical in capabilities on a per-file basis. It's really this detection that's the problem and how it's going to affect the ecosystem and which direction we want to take it. So that's all I wanted to add. It seems to me that a lot of this comes down to this idea that the ideal future is where we've abandoned the script target and we are all using module target for everything, which may or may not be turn out to be the case. But it sounds like a lot most people maybe are hoping for this day. But there is a very long transition period here, isn't there? Because and that's that's where this idea of fat packages come in, that people want to use these features, but they also want to be able to support older versions of Node. And we've seen that transition process take place with Node 08 being now properly dropped off people's radars. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anyone that's actually supporting 08 in public packages. I'm sure there are. Um, I but that's do. Now, NPM. Wow. NPM support 048 oh, because we've got a so NPM does, yeah. 
Zero Eight is uh, is it's over four years old, I think. And now we're heading into this period where we've got these LTS releases and it's probably not highly likely that we'll get some module stuff into Node version 4 and version 4 will be around for, sorry, version 6, I mean, be around for around three years from when it starts. So the transition period is really long between when we have a, a system that is happy, every version, every actively supported version of it is happy supporting modules versus having to deal with a system that doesn't support modules at all and doesn't know about them. So fat packages come in where it's the idea that you can support both. You can work on the new stuff, but also support the old stuff by having a transpilation step of some kind, um, I guess, to pull in old stuff. I, I'm not looking forward to that. I don't use transpilers at the moment because I, 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 I don't particularly like heavy build steps. I know a lot of particularly front-end developers are comfortable with heavy build steps and other people will be, but I'm not looking forward to having to make this trade-off. Forrest, can you talk a bit about the transition period and how you see that panning out and where it might end up? I think I, I want to jump back for just a sec and point out the reason why we still support 0.8 for NPM is because there are several large installations out there where there are large classes of small servers with single purposes. I don't want to like out anybody, so I'm not going to get too specific, where it just does not make financial sense for them to go through the effort of modernizing those code bases, but they do want to be able to pull down patches if, in case of security issues. So for that reason, I think NPM is committed to supporting 0.8 until I get feedback from a couple of these installations that they can now, and they're quite substantial, like long-term early stage node adopters who are running thousands of different services on the internet with, with 0.8 still. So that kind of gives you the idea that like these things don't just go away, right? Like there's a huge chunk of NPM that is basically frozen at this point. Like there are things where they're just done for whatever reason or another. And while people may pick them up and extend them and port them and fork them and turn them into new versions that do similar things, and then all they're in the process of picking up the newer features, they'll go ahead and rewrite them to use the ES module syntax. Like the the goal I think that we all share is getting ourselves on, on one kind of module system. The reality is that we are going to see over time this kind of smearing from one to the other. And I don't think we're ever going to see a time when even the top 100 packages, let's say, are all rewritten to use ES modules. I think there are going to be holdouts that are quite popular that extend throughout for the duration, because there's just no there's no reason to take the hit of rewriting them. So we're going to have to continue to support the classic node module system for the indefinite future. And there are a lot of developers out there. I include myself among them. For my personal projects, I want to make sure that it's easy for me to continue to run stuff on at least node LTS, and for a little while longer, probably on node 010 as well. And I write all my stuff now all, for all my personal projects, using the new syntax. Like I'm using ES modules, I'm using all kinds of ES 2015 features, and I'll probably start adding await and async to my workflow fairly soon. So if we come up with a solution that allows us to let the the runtime decide which of those versions they use, if we can come up with something that supports both of them, I think that that's not an absolute requirement. 
I think we could come up with a solution that says you are going to use one or the other at a certain level of granularity, and that is just how we're all going to preserve you know, what few brain cells we have left. But the cost to the user community is high. So the reason to do this is to make it, like I think I've said a couple times now, as easy as possible for people to make that switch. And to keep in mind when we're doing, when we're thinking about the trade-offs of the various solutions, that this is going to be, as I think we've all said now, an extremely prolonged process of doing that. And I don't think that that necessarily has to determine things one way or the other in terms of what proposal you do. But like, I think that five years from now, there will be like, I don't see people like Dominic Tarr and James you know, James Halliday Substack switching over to using uh, ES modules, and they account for a large chunk of what people use in practice. So I think in five years, there's still going to be a substantial fraction of packages that people rely upon that are still using, at least in the node side of things, that are still using the, the traditional node module syntax. Yeah, I've been predicting for a while that there's going to be this, we're going to have like an Amish sect within the, the, the node community that just refuses to embrace some of this new stuff. I, I myself may or may not be part of that, but it, it's going to be a reality that there's that a lot of people just see that the new stuff that's being added just doesn't add a value to warrant the overhead of, of using it. So that may be the case. Bradley, I, I wonder if we can tackle some of the more, some of the proposals that are that have obvious problems to you, but may not, but maybe obvious solutions to others. For example, somebody might suggest that if you use import on a module that it's automatically assumed to be ES modules format and you require that it's automatically assumed to be CommonJS classic script style. What are the problems with that and what are the other proposals that have come up that may have clear problems in implementation? Just to restate that, the idea was if you use import, you are importing an ES module and if you use require you are requiring a common JS module, and that's how you determine what it is ahead of time. This is a little awkward for people because as a developer, I don't really want to know when whatever module I'm using changes the module system it's running under, and I don't want my code to break in a way where, hey, I used to be able to require that module, but now I have to import it. So now I have to update my code. So I have to break my code potentially in order to update it, in order to get the newest form of a module. One of the big things with interoperability has been we don't want people to need to change their existing code, at least as long as they're doing some very common situations. Like we've said before, there are some really weird situations where you're like monkey patching other people's code and have circular dependencies. But those probably don't really affect most people. But we want it to work for like 95 plus percent of all code should need exactly zero changes and not need to do anything during this really long as Forrest said, smear into a single unified module system. And then there, we've talked about trying to parse and understand what mode something is in via the 
mechanics of the file itself, but there are ambiguous mechanics like Carity pointed out. You may have something that doesn't really say what it is, but it obviously is doing something. So we do need to know ahead of time for anything. And one interesting thing we saw and I hadn't really thought about during this whole proposal is a kind of weird situation if we only have a single entry point for your package. So this is what System.js and JSPM do. They have that ESNext main I talked about where they don't list the modes of all the files in the package. Well, this gets into odd situations where you have your entry is an ES module, but say your tests are still on common JS because you don't really want to update your tests. That's kind of risky. Well, now that no longer works because you've declared your entire goal, your target, based upon your entry point. So now files within the same package all have to be in one mode all the time. And that causes some really weird issues about, hey, now in order to use ES modules for your big monolithic app, you have to update every single file in your app. And that's not really a great way to upgrade. And it's really scary to a lot of people. We don't, we don't want that. So those are the big ones for like weird gotcha. Kerry, do you want to come back in and, and talk to some of those, some of the concerns that have already been raised about package JSON solutions and other solutions? And I'm just still interested in the fact that you don't like the extension file extension model here. Yeah. Um, and, and and how how we solve that? Yeah, the 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 first one that we were talking about a few minutes ago, trying to just push out of uh, the author the ability to to determine what what you need to do, just expecting that people either require or import that will that will never work. That that's we we discovered that very early on because we knew that, that you cannot impose that kind of of, of decision into the consumer of the, of the package. And therefore, if, if you do so, you will essentially stop the adoption process because people will be simply not upgrading their package because they will be afraid of breaking everyone else who is using that. So that's for sure no-go. On the package.json module thing, opting into, into ES6 module, saying my package is ES6, everything inside my package is ES6. Even if you have tests on it and those tests are not ES6, the question is, are those test files going to be invoked by Node or are they going to be invoked by a test runner? Most likely you will have a test runner and the test runner can have a configuration to specifically tell when the tests are written in ES6 or, or written in common JS or in a script mode or whatever mode you want. So really, the cases where you have a package that contains mix of files is very weird. It's, we, even in the case that you have that, looking into package that has different formats in the same folder structure is very weird. Like even today, you look at people writing common JS modules and using let and content or the things that are not allowed in all version of Node, which sort of the same problem. How do we solve that today? 
like the module the, that module does simply doesn't work in all versions of Node, and and someone will have to do something to get it to work on, on all versions of Node. So we we I honestly believe that this is not a big 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 chunk of people. This is only a very narrow case. We could probably survey npm right now, but but the the problem is that we don't have the real module supporting nodes, so it's very difficult to assess what, the, the quantity of people who will be getting into these weird cases that they will have to go and specify something extra on the package.json. Other than just opting into a mode, they will have to opt into the mode and say specifically what are the files that they want to parse as ES6 modules. It's, it's gonna be a small percentage, I, I can guarantee that. <laughs> Bradley, is this is is this the the final outstanding thing to discuss with the package, or is there other things? Like, are we, are we just trying to find resolution to the signaling mechanism here, or are we bikesheding on multiple things at the same time still? Actually, no, we haven't had any need to change what's going to happen to convert your module.exports into a module namespace which is what the ES modules use. That's pretty much done. We had a meeting with the V8 team this week about it, and they didn't see any problems. So pretty much the only thing that's left is kind of running through the steps, getting a prototype together, and yeah, determining how we want to set the file mode before we evaluate things that's that's all the bike time frame we're looking at here v8 is working on this actively now but i don't believe it's going to be in you know before version 5.0 or anything no um, so their time frame is a little bit murky chakra is actually being speedier about this so both chakra and v8 have parsers for the ES module target, and they just don't know the exact specifics and mechanics of how the loaders need data in order to hook things up. And so that was what the meeting was this week. It's not on their roadmap for this quarter, so it's probably not going to make it in. It may make it in to next year's LTS is the realistic goal I'm setting. But we may see some like hidden flags just for testing purposes and some development builds of Node before then. Okay, that's interesting. So if people want to contribute to this discussion, I, like I'm, I'm reluctant to suggest that people should go and you know throw in a, in a plus one on file extension or plus one on package JSON stuff. I, I don't think that would be constructive at this stage. But if people want to engage in this discussion, is there a, a constructive way for them to do that without contributing to just noise? Or is that an unfair question because it's all noise anyway? It's not all noise, but there is a lot of noise. There are a lot of people who read the thread and then suggest one of the ideas that we talk about earlier in the thread because they skim over it. And that's really awkward because it's just noise and I start quoting myself or other people in response. I'd say the biggest thing you can do is 
if you want to discuss this, discuss your concerns, not the mechanics you want to see. Discuss what your pain points currently are, just kind of to help us guide our decisions about what the ecosystem is and what it's looking to become. Because this is really a difficult question. We're talking about the ecosystem, and I'm going to just kind of leave that to Forrest if you want to talk and kind of point at him. But, yeah. Uh, Thanks, Bradley. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, I I think that the, the discussion is such that we do need to... We have a couple outstanding issues. Uh, there are ones where I don't think it makes sense to make take a vote on it, right? Like the, there is a deliberation process that we're all kind of collectively trying to figure out in, in the node world and how we actually come to making decisions around things where there are these kinds of competing trade-offs. And I don't really have any more of an answer to that than anybody else does. There was some suggestions to kind of create a... Uh, a repo rather than trying to keep this whole discussion on a single thread. The same thing that happened with the promises discussion recently. And while that means that there's a lot more work for us to, to, to keep track of, I think that that might be a good way to, to deal with the problem that people are getting about 20 or 30 messages into this 400 message thread. And they're just saying, all right, I'm out. I'm just going to go down to the end and put my thoughts down. Cause like that, as Bradley said, just adds to the noise, doesn't make anything better. The tricky piece here is that it would be really nice to have implementations of both strategies to play with and to just see what it's like to build stuff against them with the, the explicit knowledge that these are these are prototypes. And when I say both things, I mean the file name and the package.json thing. Like, I want to be clear that I am not trying to set the agenda here. I want to make sure that what we came up would come up with is something that, that is going to, to work for people, but like that's on a personal level. As the NPM CLI team lead, once there's a decision made, I don't think anybody should worry that, that we're going to say, no, that sucks, we're not going to do it. We will, we will follow the will of the group when it comes to implementing a solution once that's been established. That said, it would be super nice to have a version of Node and probably a version of NPM that in as much as NPM has to do anything, because mostly we're just saying, yeah, you can have this chunk of real estate in our package manifest. That's really all NPM needs to do to start. There are other things that it could do eventually, especially if you go into some of the the darker corners of the JavaScript universe and look at like Truck Lewacki's proposal from about a year and a half ago about how this there could be some version of the registry that automatically figures out how to transpile your packages between all the possible formats they could ever be in and how that would be great for developers. And I personally have no idea how the hell we would build that. We're not going to do that right now. But it would be nice to have a build of, of Node and NPM that work together with whatever solution we come up with for both of these. That's a lot of work. It requires some support from the V8 team if we want to actually get the module syntax into JavaScript itself. But that seems like the, the most useful thing that we could do next. I do, I do want to reinforce something that Brad said, and that is I would very much like to see us framing this in terms of problems and trade-offs and problem statements and things that what, what, are, what are the actual use cases and goals that people are trying to use. Because like all engineers, especially when they're, they're – potentially contentious things here where there are two solutions that are pretty good either way. People go straight in a solution space 
And when you haven't yet decided which set of the problems you're trying to solve, that tends to create a lot of murk and it prevents people from being able to make good, solid decisions. And I see that a lot around TC39 decision-making and on ES Discuss. And like, it is a little frustrating sometimes when people come in and try to re-legislate decisions that we, as a group, had collectively gotten passed earlier on. So as much as possible, I'd like people to say, what are the barriers to actually getting this thing landed and done and in an LTS version of Node so we can stop thinking about it and start working on migrating our modules to use this new, this new syntax? Yeah, I think we also have the problem here of having to consider the all of the stakeholders involved. And in this one, we've got to think about the browser stakeholders as well. And so not only do we have to jump out of our own little box of, of how we prefer to do things or how we would like to be able to do things in the future versus what other people are going to prefer, because there are legitimate preferences out there beyond our own, but also the different stakeholders that have completely different use cases to us. Getting in there and, and throwing in a solution that, and or a preference that works for you, but doesn't accommodate anyone else is really unconstructive. And we're seeing a little bit of the same sort of thing happen in the promises discussion around core. People are finding it very difficult to drop out of the mode where they're thinking about their preferred style of development and considering that other people have different preferences on both sides of the debate. And that creates this sort of intractability when you're discussing things. Okay, so we have the we have the, the, the promises discussion, which we're trying some different tactics on dealing with. We've got the modules one that's going on that largely involved fairly technical and knowledgeable people that, you know, aren't just throwing in, you know, their emotional thoughts. It's, it's actually quite a constructive discussion, I think. And we've got the, the, the Chakra Core pull request, which has got its own dynamic. And there's a couple of other discussions that are, we're trying to figure out what are the, what are the best ways to tackle these in, in a way that has maximum stakeholder involvement and the least pain possible, even though we have to accept that there is going to be pain. Lastly, though, I want to move on to just quickly a little bit of JavaScript philosophy, and maybe Forrest, you're somebody that can chime in here, but JavaScript has this thing of 1.js where we, we're always going to support the old versions of JavaScript, and we're not going to break that compatibility. But the, the forward compatibility story has always been very difficult. You know, There's, there's been these new features that, that just don't exist. This particular one with the modules is like, this is kind of big where it's, you're saying there are certain files, like it's just a file type that is just completely different to what we knew as JavaScript in the past. Is this kind of pain going to be good for JavaScript in the end? Or is it, or is this like, is this a bad sign for where JavaScript is going? I just, I mean, I'm throwing that out there as a discussion starter, but what are your thoughts around that forest? It always helps, I think, to think about this in terms of, of risks and trade-offs, right? Like, and opportunities. Like, the opportunity here is that we as a language community have been trying to get to a way to modularize JavaScript for close to 20 years now, right? Like, there, there wasn't one. They, there, was a, there was a valiant effort made to land that as part of the ES4 effort, it got derailed for all of the other reasons that ES4 got derailed. We don't have to go into that right now. But like having a way, to, having a standard way to package up and componentize your JavaScript libraries and applications has been something that, that has been missing for 
pretty much the entirety of JavaScript's existence. Like Common JS got us part of the way there, and it works. It's, it's worked out extraordinarily well, both for the npm ecosystem and for the Node community as a whole. And over time, as solutions like Browserify and RollupJS have come along, it's actually it's worked okay for the front end, but there have been alternate solutions because the needs are slightly different for the front end landscape. Uh, you know, looking very carefully at what James Burke did with AMD is pretty instructive there. He's been fairly actively involved in the ES modules discussion. Like, there was a need here that was not being met, which is a way to exchange code and to allow people to build JavaScript in a, like, to use to consume and produce JavaScript in a universal way for both the server and browser ends that wasn't there before. And we now have an opportunity to do that. The risks are that we are not going to be able to bring the whole ecosystem along and we're going to end up in this kind of permanently fractured landscape. I think that's probably going to happen. Question is, how bad is that going to be? And is that is that worse than what we had before? And I personally don't think that it's worse than what we had before. I think it's a huge step forward for us to work towards this. Like, like we've managed to finally, I think, put a stake through the heart of isomorphic. If you follow Kent Dodds on Twitter, he had a little a little Twitter poll for, you know, what do you call JavaScript that runs on both the server and the browser end? Like, we are moving into a world where full stack development means that you can be writing the, the same programming language all the way from the far back end, all the way to the complete front end. And that is, that is a huge boon for productivity and taking advantage of the knowledge and skills that a very large sector of developers already have. So from where I sit, like, this is an example of Yes, we are breaking both forwards and backwards compatibilities to move between what are essentially different worldviews. But the benefit is, is very clear, very tangible, and I think we are all going to be in a much better position to, to do stuff once we've gotten there. Like, not every piece of code is going to, to benefit from doing this, but enough is that I think that it, on the whole it's going to be a huge win. Kerry, do, uh, do you think this is a one-off, or is this, is this the new reality that we can expect in terms of trauma and you know difficulty in moving forward is this how we this is the new tc39 and what wg process or is this a one-off thing to do something particularly special no i don't think it's a, a one-off I, I think we will continue introducing features going forward but i do think that this is the major shift that we that we will see in a long time think about the idea of having native modules and potentially the idea that from now on most of the new APIs will come via native modules rather than global stuff hanging on the global variable. This is the, the mindset that, that, that we might get into really quick. And we have seen already in the committee people pushing for defining new APIs via modules it's rather than just keep piling things into the global object and some global name space that you can use. This is the case of Cindy and Intel, with all the new internationalization things that we want to have. This is a big shift, but we will continue introducing new new features. I think top-level await and, and, and other features that are on the pipeline are not, are not really that uh, impactful in the sense that it would not require like a huge overhaul of the whole thing. But in the future, we might, we might have some of those. But this one is definitely a big one. So we've just got to figure out how to to do this in a way that's not so painful in the future. So make it just accept that this is part of our process. And uh, yeah, but but I, I 
I could not agree more with Forrest. Like, this is not new for developers. Like, bringing modules, they bring in the import and export syntax is definitely new, but the concept behind modules is, is really not new. We have been battling with this for a long, long time. And this is the position of the committee. Like, whenever there's something that we see people trying to figure out in many different ways, that's something that we probably should be looking at and try to solve it and try to get something that works well enough for everyone that people can get on board and use it. Yeah, I guess the trick is to engage and involve as many stakeholders as possible, and that includes, you know, small-time developers, people who don't even think of themselves as developers, all the way up to large companies doing really complex deployments. I want to, to mention that this is actually the current state of things in the community. Like, we have people who work for very big companies, and we have people who work for organizations and small groups and small shops that are collaborating directly with the with the committee and bringing ideas to the committee, presenting, championing things. So this is not anymore like 10 years ago when only big companies that were actually pushing for changes on the, on the language for people that were not even using the language on the daily basis. Like most of the people right now that are championing things are people who are really using the language on an everyday. Like for me, using Node or as a primary user of Node and pushing for things that I know are important for Node and, and, and so on. So this is really the mode that we are operating right now. We should acknowledge that. And with Node's shift to more inclusive and open governance, I think we're also trying to do a job down there at, at involving users a lot more in this process. Bradley, just to close up, what's your impression of the processes? Are, are you optimistic about the way things are going here and that, that Node's interests are being represented well and, and we've got a seat at the table um, and that the way forward is positive or are you a little bit pessimistic perhaps? I would say our our interests are becoming more and more well represented. I think TC39 is paying very close attention to what's going on in Node. And that's one of the reasons that this interoperability story is actually not that difficult. Traditionally, people thought, hey, um, this is too big. Node won't be able to support it. But actually, it's, it's pretty easy to do the mechanics of it. Um, so I'm very optimistic about it. Um, that said, I think this is also probably hopefully, the only time that we have this kind of target change. So historically, when we added features to JavaScript, it, it didn't really affect existing code. It might do like bug fixes or things like that that would affect existing code. But this is a very unique situation. And so I'm not fearful of the future because I don't think we'll see another situation like this where we're entirely changing the default way in which people are going to write code in a way that affects existing code if you don't know what's happening. Okay, I won't mention Wasm then. <laughs> let's, uh, let's save that for another day. Let's close out now and do some plugs. This is a section of the show where we get to, to plug something that's not necessarily related to the work we do or, or technology even. And it's just something we want to share just to to round out the show, let's start off with Bradley. Do you, what's your plug today? So I'm going to butcher this name, but Dmitry Shoshnikov, 
has a wonderful blog that goes into great technical depth for the ECMAScript spec. If you ever wanted to learn the nitty-gritty innards about the ECMAScript or JavaScript specification, but don't really want to read a technical document, it's a great place to start. We'll include a link to that on the show note on the website. Karidi, what's your plug today? Just suggesting that we actually are putting some effort on getting internationalization and globalization on Node. And Steve Loomis has been doing a, a great job there with the working group. And we need more help. We need more people who are interested in um, getting Node up to speed in terms of internationalization with what we have in, in the browsers and also with all the new features that we are going to bring to ECMAScript very soon, it would be great if you guys get get into the loop and start helping us on that. And, and the same for ECMA 262 and ECMA 402, just uh, get involved. It's a great community. We need help. We need more people who can learn and understand the specifications and help us to write tests and help us to write bug fixes and, and fixing the spec that we have. And the process is quite simple right now. It's just using Git. Forrest, what have you got to share with us? So there's been a lot of buzz recently about how to replace a lot of your build tooling when you're working with NPM. You know, if you're using some simple grunt or gulp scripts, quite often you can just replace those with package scripts. And one of the, like, we've kind of just stumbled into those being as useful as they are. And one of the things we've been thinking about recently is how to make that work better across platform because quite frequently people will end up using bashisms or other kind of bits of Unix shell syntax that don't work well on Windows. And we've been thinking about how to kind of square that up. And it just turns out that there's a couple projects coming up right now that are probably going to simplify that for us quite a bit. And I think that they might be interesting to a large number of other people. One of them is called Cache. Cache is C-A-S-H. It's basically an attempt to come up with something that looks and feels like Bash, but is written to run exclusively inside Node, which, you know, if you think about that for a minute, that would mean you could basically write basic shell pipelines as your package scripts, and then they would run the same on both Windows and on Unix platforms, including OS X, which would be fantastic. Another slightly different approach is one that the Shell.js maintainers are starting to play around with, Cache is up on the registry, but SHX is still new enough that it hasn't been published yet. And it's actually a way, a, kind of a more interesting proposition in some ways. It's like, here is a way to expose the power of a command shell, but done in a more JavaScript syntaxy way. So it's more like running stuff inside a, a node REPL. We're looking at both of these. We are. It's way too soon for us to, to make any decisions about which we're going to adopt because both projects are really young and they aren't really ready for that kind of use yet. But if you have a need for having a shell interpreter in your JavaScript app and you are interested in having that behave the same way on Windows and on other platforms, give it a look. They're pretty interesting. I have to say that the readme for cache is pretty cool because it's got an animated GIF that is uh, both educational and entertaining. So I'd vote for that one, <laughs> just for that. So my plug is, I feel guilty talking about my own stuff here, but I want to plug a talk that I did the other day for a a virtual conference called Hack Summit that was it's held online and has some 
like there were some amazing speakers from around the world and I somehow got thrown in there as well but I got to present from my office via my computer which is very novel I talked about uh, node governance and open governance in general, just some of the ideas behind open governance, and a lot of work and thought went into that, so I'm going to use that as my plug today and encourage you to have a look at that to see what we're trying to achieve in Node and what my thoughts are on the future of open source and open governance. So that's it. We have some upcoming events. that we, uh, We've got two listed. If you've got other upcoming events that you want listed in NodeUp, you should let us know. Ping at NodeUp on Twitter to, to get something included, and we'll, we'll figure out a better way of collecting these lists. But the two we have listed is Node Live, which is a new series of small events that is happening all around the world that is being championed by the Node Foundation, Michael Rogers in particular. If you go to live.nodejs.org, you will find details about what cities around the world. There's US and Asia and Europe, I think, at the moment. So that's a good one to get onto. I think as of recording, uh, it was a, a day ago that the first one was held uh, in uh, Los Angeles. So apparently it was pretty good. NPM Camp. Forrest, how about you explain what NPM Camp is and when it is? So NPM Camp was just announced this week. It is largely being set up and run by my esteemed colleague and newly elected Node Foundation board member, Ashley Williams. It is going to be held at a fantastic location in Oakland, California at the end of July, July 30th. And it is going to be a not incredibly formal but it's going to be a food camp style. Everybody gets together. Mostly people from the user community are going to be speaking at it. I should probably have more CFP details than I do right now. But if you go to the link that is in the show notes, then you can learn more about the CFP there. It's going to be super fun. A large percentage, if not all, of the NPM team will be there. And I've seen some pretty interesting proposals from people for talks that will actually probably end up having effects long after the conference is over. And I really would like to see as many of you there. I mean, it's it's a, there's no substitute to everybody getting together and hanging out and talking about stuff. And I think it's going to be a really good time. And I think it will also be dangerously close to educational. It's actually probably worth mentioning, uh, since you mentioned that Ashley, she, uh, she's championing Node Together, which is a diversity-focused event that couples with Node Live. So if you go to nodetogether.org, you can see that, but I've heard some really good feedback about the first one of them that happened in LA this week. In particular, some very positive feedback about Ashley's ability to pull together an educational event. Let's close the show up. Follow NodeUp on Twitter. You can sponsor NodeUp. If you email NodeUp at gmail.com, you can get some more info about how to sponsor and support the existence of this awesome podcast. And that's it. I'd like to thank our three panelists, Forrest, Kerity, and Bradley. It's been fantastic. It's been very educational for me, and I'm sure that others will find so as well. Uh, thanks for joining us, and tune in next time for another interesting NodeUp. Up.